This is Dwight Powell of the Dallas Mavericks, and you're listening to Numbers on the Boards with Bobby Carla and Jeff Skin Wade. Carla? Dwight, dude, he has one job, man. It's Carella. Hello. Welcome to Numbers on the Boards, your weekly Mavs podcast. I am back from the bye week, back from Super Bowl week. I'm Bobby Carella from Mavs.com. Joining me today is a guy who held it down all by himself. He took the show on the road last week. He is Jeff Skin Wade. Hello, Bobby. How the hell are we doing, man? Dude, I'm good, man. I'm good. How are you? Man, I'm happy to be back home. Uh, was in Minnesota last week for the Super Bowl, and uh, obviously that's a fun deal and all that, but uh, I miss my basketball when I'm gone. It makes me sad. So I'm happy to be back here, and uh, I'm getting real ant because on Thursday we have the trade deadline, so we'll see if any activity goes down. It's a big week for basketball. Big week for basketball, and... Uh, I think there's already been quite a bit of activity. I think it's uh, it's pretty interesting. I know you consume as much basketball media as I do, and there was a big article yesterday about the sort of money crunch that's going on in the NBA as the cap's not progressing the way they think it was a couple of years ago, and there's a lot of teams with luxury tax, and here our Dallas Mavericks are the team that spent like a decade and a half in the luxury tax looking at it going – We've got cap space, and we're looking for assets, and we know where we stand in the NBA landscape. So while I don't think a a blockbuster is going to be coming down the pike, I do think over the next 48 hours or so, Donnie Nelson's phone is going to be blowing up because the Mavericks are sort of positioned to be a facilitator in some of this trade activity. It's all pretty interesting. Yeah, for sure. So that article that you were talking about, that was on ESPN, Basically, what it was saying is that the salary cap right now is what 101 million dollars. Yes. And they were the NBA teams were told two years ago that it would be up to 107 by now. Right. So you might say, well, that's only a six million dollar difference, but that matters because that means the luxury tax moves. That means that all of these, all of these kind of thresholds that teams have to meet are moved. So some teams have too much money, and not many teams don't have enough. Yeah. And the Mavs are one of them. And I think, too, so many teams, when they make these sort of grand plans, and and Maverick fans know this because how many times have the Mavericks gone and chased the quote-unquote big fish, a lot of that positioning is about how much cap space do you have for a max guy, for example. And so if you thought you were going to have cap space for a max guy in a year, and then suddenly you're $6 million off, that's significant. That, That really is. And so... I think, you know, there's been so much talk about why the Mavericks did or didn't draft, uh, you know, the Greek freak and Shane Larkin and all that. Part of that was about trying to have a little more extra salary space to chase a free agent. And that was only for like $100,000. Right. Imagine that times 60. Right. You know, I mean, it's it's It's, it serious. Can, it's a franchise changing amount of money. Yeah. And the Mavericks are looking for young players and picks. I mean, I don't think anyone's delusional about where the team is in its progress. And so if they can use their salary cap space to take on, uh, for lack of a better term, an undesirable contract and pick up an asset, they're certainly positioned to do that. And I think that's where a lot of this talk is going to be focused. Yeah, so stay tuned for news over the next 72 hours. It's one of the most exciting times of the year in any American sport, really. The NBA yeah. trade deadline. And, and speaking as such, in the next 10 minutes or so, Tim McMahon, uh, ESPN is going to come kick down our door, and he's a really good follow this time of year. He's a big news-breaking entity in the basketball sports landscape, so we'll have Timmy Mack on, and I'm sure he'll have lots of strong 
opinionated Tim McMahon things to say, but he's a great follow on Twitter all year long, but especially this time. Especially for the NBA. And Tim McMahon's claim to fame, he is the only media member in Dallas who dresses worse than I do. So, well, I don't, that's interesting because I guess it's uh, ugliness is in the eye of the beholder. Because, yeah. I mean, I don't think anybody's rushing out to dress like Sefco. <laughs> yeah, that's true. But he's earned the right, man. He's been in the game for so long. He has. I've always said that uh, Eddie Sefco is the Danny Glover character in Lethal Weapon. Yeah. That's like always about to jump off a building going, I'm too old for this S. You know, he's, he's Eddie's got, but Eddie is an OG. Eddie, if you don't know, uh, was you know down there in Houston when the Rockets were winning back-to-back championships, and uh, he's a great guy. He and Barkley are, are bros. What's what that? I, he and Charles Barkley are bros. That's right. What I hear. That's right. There's also a really great story. Maybe someday we'll do old Maverick stories, but maybe someday we should just have Eddie on. I would love having Eddie that. on. Yeah. But uh, one of our buddies, Kenton Nelson, who is now out at Texas Motor Speedway, used to work for the Dallas Mavericks and is probably friends with uh, your mom, who worked for the Dallas Mavericks for a long, long time. And he was in the, with the Mavericks in the '90s, and then he had moved on and was working for an apparel company, and. He was there when Houston was doing their parade, and he was handing out shirts or something to the players. And so he was handing out the last shirts, and the last fire truck was getting ready to leave for the parade, and he was going to get left behind. So he jumped on. So he was on with Olajuwon and Drexler. Dude, nice. Just riding through the parade going, God, I hope my boss doesn't see me. This is probably a bad look right now. Yeah. but. There's a lot of great little stories like that from these guys who have been around for 100 years. Of all, of all the floats to get on. That's a good one. That is the that is probably the best one. You know, Eddie Sefko rode with Carlisle in the parade. Did he? Are yes. you serious? Yes, he did. How did he pull that off? I don't know, but that's... Uh, so I was... So, so it's like Rick, Donna, Abby, and Eddie. <laughs> you know, at that point, so I'm trying to think, Abby was probably so young, but I'm sure she was there. I don't remember yeah. her specifically, but I'm sure she was. Yeah. We're talking about Rick's daughter. But um, so I was on the float or car or whatever the hell it was with Followell and Coop and Victor and Bob Ortigal, um, Harp, those the, the broadcast folks. And I remember looking back and seeing Eddie with Rick and going, well, there you go. A couple of bosom buddies right yeah. there. How about that? Dude, that is – well, so Eddie has a, another funny story. I, I want to let him tell that, though. But basically, I believe during that season or maybe the year before that, on New Year's Eve, he somehow managed uh, to get into Rick Carlisle's hotel room with his pants down. <laughs> he suffered a wound of some kind, is what it was. But yeah, we got to get him on to tell that yeah, story. Yeah, okay, good. So now we've, he doesn't know yet, but we just booked Eddie Sefko. Oh, absolutely. This, yeah, and we've told on. a lot of kind of embarrassing stories. But hey, that's what it's all about. That is. Uh, okay, so last night, skin, there was a game. There was a basketball game between uh, the Dallas Mavericks and the Los Angeles Clippers. That was significant for many reasons, um, primarily because it was the night when Dirk Nowitzki played his 50,000th minute. Man, it is uh, those, those sorts of things. And I didn't even notice it until someone had sent me a note on Twitter. Cause, so when I do the pre- and post-game show at Fox Sports Southwest, last night it was me and Dana and Trix. And so we do the thing on the studio, then we go back to this office area, and I'm usually watching the game on a TV at Dana Larson's cubicle. So it'll be like Chris Schneider's our producer, and I don't really get to hear that much of the broadcast. I hear it in little chunks, because a lot of times we're talking amongst ourselves. So I don't even know if Followell and Harp covered it. No, they never, okay. they never saw it. All right. And then at uh, when it was 88 to 85, 
a really good Mav fan uh, named Samir, and I've known him for years through Twitter and through Mav events, sent me the picture on Twitter where it was like Dirk had just been talking to a ref, and you see it on the back. I was like, good God, I didn't even notice that. And so I told Schneider, our producer, I was like, we've got to put this on the, the broadcast, right? On the, pre- on the post-game show. So it's a historic night because we all knew six minutes in, Dirk was going to pass 50,000. And then immediately leapfrog Elvin Hayes, who, weirdly enough, had only played 50,000 flat. Such an awesome stat. Such an awesome stat. So the second that you entered the 50,000 plateau, which Dirk was the sixth guy to do it, mm-hmm. you immediately become number five because you play 30 seconds and you're going to pass Elvin Hayes, right? So, uh, so Dirk does that. And I don't know that I've ever seen Dirk's jersey misspelled before in 20 years. Yeah, I don't think so. That game, a historic game, it almost makes me, it, the conspiracy wheels start turning that that is, what a great charity item. Absolutely. Because I go to all these charity events and people are always auctioning off, hey, here's a, like right now, there's a really cool thing that Witch Witch is doing, the great sandwich shop, where they're doing these Dirk sandwiches, right? And there's six of them, I believe. And then they're registering Mav fans for a chance to have a meet and greet with Dirk and hoop with him and all this. And then the money goes to Dirk's foundation. Mm. And so, uh, you know, I go to these different events and things, and there's always cool items. Uh, Dirk did, when he did his tennis deal, uh, there was a really cool thing that Rick Carlisle had made up, and there was only four in the world. And it was this framed thing with a diagram of the play and a picture of the shot when Dirk passed 30K. And Devin Harris, who made the pass, autographed it. And Followell autographed it because Followell made the call. And Dirk, and on and on and on. And Rick had made it for Followell for Devin, for Dirk, and for him. And Rick auctioned his off, and it raised a ton of money uh, for Dirk's foundation. So my whole point is that these really cool, unique things, if you're a sports fan and you have a little bit of dough, you want that in your office. Who's not gonna want the Dirk jersey that he passed 50,000 minutes and his name is spelled Nowinski or whatever (laughs) that is? I'm looking at this going, I want to buy that. I'm yeah. going to put my kid's college fund on hold, and I'm going to buy that and frame it and put it in my damn I mean, house. He's worn 1,500 jerseys in his career, and like that is the first one that's ever had any problems with it. It's he's amazing. never had a jersey torn. I don't even think any of the times he's gotten battered and bruised. I don't think he's got blood on his jersey. But like This is like the first like tampered, tainted Dirk jersey, jersey. of all time. Yeah, so, like, uh, I mean, hell, he's... And they are auctioning it off, by the way, I think. Oh, that's already a done deal? I think so, yeah. I think uh, Al Whitley was tweeting about that last night. Okay. Uh, Maybe I went to bed too soon. Yeah, uh, wow. You were up all night placing bets. Don't play it off. You don't know about this already. (laughs) So that's that's awesome. Uh, So I hope they're... Is that going to the Mavs Foundation? Uh, Probably the Dirk. Yeah. Probably Dirk's Foundation. That's good. Which is a great foundation, by the way. What is the... Do you have details on the auction? Uh, Let me see. Let me do a This is live coverage that you're going to hear recorded later. Should I put the microphone up on the... I'm a professional. Oh, yeah. No, I'll hold it for you so you can type. Can you hear me typing? This is is really happening live to later recorded podcast. name misspelled. Uh, I don't know. I I don't see it. I don't see it anywhere. I'm looking and I can't find okay. the information. I we'll, thought, we'll get it out there, yeah, Bobby. We'll give me your Twitter for just in case people don't already. Yeah, follow so you. it's at Bobby Corella. Uh, no spaces, no underscores, no hyphens. No just, you just said that like people know how to spell. I mean, I call you Corella, so I'm not even saying your damn name. It, right. it doesn't matter. I've been called everything. I've heard it all. My last name is K A R A 
L L A. You pronounce it almost like uh, Corella de Ville, uh-huh. but just a little differently. Was that know? the Dalmatians? Yeah, the one, yeah, okay. hundred one Dalmatians. So in fifth grade, uh, I ran for class president of wow. the student council. Very, and, very uh, uh, ambitious. Yeah, and my older sister Lisa and her best friend at the time, Kristen, were both cheerleaders at the middle school down okay. the road. They were All both right. in eighth grade. Nice. So for my campaign speech, my campaign speech, I was stumping. Um, they came to school in their cheerleader uniforms. Okay. Put their arms like we linked arms and did like a Corella Deville. Yeah. Yeah. But is there? A, I won in a landslide. Is there a picture of this? There. I don't believe so. Thank Come on, God. the Throwback Thank Thursday. God. I guarantee uh, you. Maybe, but I don't know. Lisa well, listens to the podcast. Lisa, you need to come up with a picture of this. Yeah. Uh, hope not. Hope not. Well, there is. There's definitely pictures of of her. I don't know if there's pictures of us that day, but I did win in a landslide. Historic moment. That's awesome. At Degan Elementary School. Congratulations. Uh, thank you. Go. Do they ever, they ever have you come back and speak to the kids about? your historic election no 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 uh they they've covered it many times in the school newspaper okay uh, all right yeah um okay skin what do you think uh what do you think about talking to tim mcmahon here man it's really just up to tim he's about to kick down the door and be surly mcmahon so without further ado let's give way to one of espn's greats joining us now is espn nba insider reporter personality uh Breaking news guy and longtime friend of ours, Skin. Oh, yeah. And the worst dressed Mavs media member. He is Tim McMahon. Okay, first of all, I'm a friend of Skin, not yours. Second of all, <laughs> Bobby, you shop for Herman Munster boots at Sears. <laughs> Third of all, Earl K. Sneed, your colleague, wears like skin tight, dorky vests. So, <laughs> unless you are saying you guys aren't media, there's no way I could possibly be the worst dressed. And we haven't even gotten to Sefco yet. Yeah, Sefco's oh, the worst. Yeah. That's the trump card. The skin pulled that earlier. Well, Tim, I got to say, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. I, I sense some sarcasm there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, uh, Tim, this season, you have not. You've been following the Rockets more than you have the Mavs. Uh, the Rockets are having a really great season. What has it been like for you? Um, I mean, you're still around the Mavs every every. I was so gonna say hashtag, hashtag fake news. I've only missed like three or four home games. No, no, yeah, you're you're around. You're around. So, what has this season been like for you uh, watching the Mavericks? What are kind of your impressions of, especially Dennis Smith Jr. Uh, and the young guys, kind of how they're coming along, how the team is doing? Well, obviously, it's a whole new world for the Mavericks, and it, it was a. A long run of success and really historic success when you look at 10, or what was it, 11, 50 win seasons in a row. I mean, you look at decade-long 50-plus win streaks. Bill Russell Celtics, Magic's Lakers, the Duncan, now Kawhi, whatever, Pop Spurs, and Dirk's Mavericks, and that's the entire list. And so, you know, it's, it's been kind of a, a steady decline, and they, and they tried to keep it going. They tried to kind of breathe championship life back into it through free agency and that whole plan, which obviously didn't come to fruition. And the time has come. It's a full-fledged rebuilding project right now, and, and obviously that's the priority. The most important part of this season, with all due respect to Dirk in his 20th year, is the development of a 20-year-old kid. Uh, Dennis Smith Jr. and last night he looked like a 20-year-old kid and there's going to be times like this winning is not the priority if winning was the priority Dirk would have played more than two clutch minutes uh, since January 1st Hmm. he's played a grand total of two minutes in in clutch situations since January 1st but look they need to get Dennis Smith Jr. and and, uh, Yogi Ferrell and and even Maxi Kleba 
some experience in those situations. One, because, you know, let the kids grow. Two, because eh, if you lose, then the ping pong balls add up. And am I allowed to say that on Maverick's podcast? It's the reality of it. I mean, look, there's a byproduct of this. It'd be different if it wasn't Dennis Smith Jr. out there making these decisions, right? And there's been moments where he's made the right decisions and been great. Most notably, the Oklahoma City New Year's Eve game comes to mind. In fact, he had a really good stretch there. And during that stretch, Wesley was playing great. And I think Wesley was playing great partly because Dennis was playing great. They were feeding off of one another. But I have zero issues. If, If that would last night was all about winning, then J.J. and Devin are on the floor. But... It's not all about winning. It's, they would love to win, but if they win, they want it to be because Dennis and Harrison are delivering, not because Dirk and JJ are delivering, because th- we're at the point now where we got to look one and two seasons beyond. Yeah, I mean, JJ's job is to keep them in games. Yeah. Um, but, <laughs> yeah. But look, Dennis, for better or worse, you want to see him on the floor in those late in the game situations. The only way he's going to. Uh, learn how to win is through trial and error. What have you you seen with Dennis from like your initial thoughts at training camp to now? Has anything about him changed in your mind? Honestly, I thought he would shoot the three a little bit better. Um, But obviously you you knew there was the athleticism. I I do like the way that he sees the floor. Um, I think though he has to, the athleticism for him has been so dominant throughout his life. I mean, in AAU, he was just going to go out there and jump over people. Mm-hmm. Even, I think, uh, in the ACC. Not in the NBA, though. And so he's had to learn. And, and, you know, really little subtle things like learning how to finish with his left hand, which I've, I've seen huge strides for that early in the season. And you guys know this. He never even tried to finish with his left. I remember when the Pelicans were in town – he made three nice moves to his left, and each time he tries to finish with a little right-hand layup, and each time Anthony Davis said, kid, uh-uh. Yeah, and the one play against the, I think it was the Cavaliers game, whenever he was going to the left and kind of went for the reverse. A really yeah. tough reverse, yeah. right. And, and, and he's had some really nice left-handed finishes. But, look, there's also going to be times where he looks like a 20-year-old kid who's mm-hmm. learning how to play uh, in the NBA against grown-ass men and he's going to have a nine turnover game. He's going to commit uh, five fouls in the fourth quarter, and the one with 24 seconds left was just a complete brain fart to, to donate go-ahead free throws uh, to the Clippers. Uh, and last night, yeah, I mean, minus 20. Had a nice highlight on, at DeAndre's expense. I'm sure Mavericks fans enjoyed that. But, yeah. man, nine turnovers, fouled out, minus 22. But I, I would say, though, if you're if you're feeling frustrated and you're you know you're seeing kind of you know up and down up and down there's highlights but there's not kind of sustained good smart play from Dennis Smith Jr. If you want to encourage yourself as a Mavericks fan, compare his numbers this season to 20-year-old rookie Russell Westbrook's mm-hmm. numbers. They are really similar. Yeah. And and you know that's another case of a guy, freakish athlete, learning how to play point guard right. on a rebuilding team uh, in the NBA. And I'm not saying Dennis is going to be Russ, but I'm saying, you know, th- these kind of growing pains in, in a rookie year certainly aren't any reason to be discouraged about his potential, which you know, we all believe, I, I, I think, 
is uh, is still an all-star caliber type of potential. I, I think uh, you know just from my standpoint, and I you know I've been watching the Mavericks for so long. I just remember the optimism of Jason Kidd and Mashburn and Jimmy Jackson feeling like the corner had been turned and you slam into another corner. So maybe those experiences make me a little more philosophical about dealing with young players. But quite honestly, he's exceeded my highest expectations already. And it's those things you're talking about, you know, as the season goes on, getting stronger with the left. Some of the cross-court finds, it's not just the pass that's, as Avery would say, it on time and on target. It's the read. Yeah. Those are the things that I didn't know, quite honestly, coming out of college that he could read things like that. And those are the things that get me excited because, I mean, if you're just a guy that's an athlete, well, you're a knee injury away from being just a guy. But if you can have the athleticism and make the reads and those things, that's the sort of thing that gets me really excited. Yeah, uh, Tim, we've got some plumbing issues here. Yeah. So Please stop washing your hands during yeah. the podcast. Uh, I think, but anyways, I think I, somebody was flushing last night's game. <laughs> I, think, I think his reads have been beyond what I thought they would be at this point. You know, the thing I, I really uh, like about him is his demeanor. He ain't scared of nothing. I mean, no. go back to New Year's Eve. And look, he's had some crunch time stinkers, but boy, you know, bringing Russ back up, that is a killer. And he went toe-to-toe and came out on top, not scared at all. And the thing about him, you know, when he, when he makes uh, a spectacular play, he ain't out there jumping up and down and, you know, wanting a pep rally. And, man, his face never changes. He expects it. Yeah, I mean, he is, he, he's got that killer. Now, Rick wants to make sure that killer in him is consistent on the defensive end. Right. And, you know, they went through that thing. And, and you know, Mavericks fans, oh, Rick's going to chase him away. Shut up, okay? Shut your stupid <laughs> mouths. Can I say that? On yeah. The, on Mavericks? Sure, shut, shut your, if you're an idiot, shut up. Because, number one, Rick's job is to coach him. He needs to be coached. He needs to learn how to play winning basketball in the NBA. Number two, chase him away. He's got three and a half years left on his rookie deal. Then he's going to be restricted. Rick can't chase him away, you buffoons. (laughs) But, you know, I remember, you know, and and when Dennis doesn't play in crunch time, it's Rick saying, dude. You haven't earned it. You got to play, you know, you got to have energy and and effort consistently on defense if you want to finish games. That's what it's about. And I remember – I forgot who it was against before the Knicks came to town, but Rick benched him in crunch time. Mm-hmm. And, uh, the Bulls, I believe. Yeah, maybe. that's right. When Dunn cooked him. Yeah. Yes. And Dunn did cook him. You know, Dennis tried to go, no, Dunn, I went back and, and looked. Dunn absolutely cooked him. Um, and, and Rick called him out. And, you know, I'm sure the film session the next day, Dennis probably had his eyes open like, oh, okay, yeah, maybe, yeah, you, okay, you were right, Rick. And then I remember – uh, New York came in next, and so of course all the New York guys are asking Rick about Neil Akina, and and Rick is just going overboard praising Neil Akina for man, he just competes and consistently on the defensive end. I love that about Harp's getting his jersey retired that night. So Rick's yeah. asked about Harp, you know, praising him, and he goes, and you know, his consistent competitiveness on the defensive end could—that's really something that I think Dennis Smith Jr. should try to to emulate. So you know, th- there's messages being sent there but again people who think oh my gosh you know rick's being too hard shut up like first of all and and look dennis bristled when he was rick called him out publicly after the bulls game but he's not a guy who's going to go into a shell 
because he's being coached hard. Yeah, I think you're right. I also think, you know, people always talk about the dynamic of the head coach and the player, but there's always the element of who else is on staff. And he's known Sham, yeah. for example, for a yeah. really long time. It's not just Rick and Dennis. I mean, just Jamal Mosley's got a great relationship with absolutely. him. Absolutely. And those and he spends a lot of time working with him. So, you know, there's a lot of different and sometimes there can be too many voices in a guy's ear, but I it seems the Mavericks know the importance of Dennis. Yeah. And there's not going to – he's got great vets. He's got he's got Wes helping him. Wes he's got Devin helping him. Yeah. You know, those are kind of his two main vets. Yeah. J.J., I think, is is there if he needs him. I think he could learn so – he and he probably has learned so much just from watching the way J.J. operates offensively. If he could add J.J.'s craftiness to that athleticism, man, you got something scary. And then Dirk is there if needed. But like you said, sometimes you got too many voices in here. Right. So Dirk's kind of like, hey, if you need me, I'm here for you. And if Dirk sees something during the game, he'll say something. But Dirk's not trying to kind of be on him on a daily basis. I, I guarantee you, Bobby, you've noticed this because we've talked about it on the podcast. But in the last two or three weeks, Dennis has connected with Dwight more. Yeah. And I think it's because of what you're talking about. You know, the times where yeah. he's seeing what J.J. does and what, you know, it's more J.J. than Devin. But when he sees that sort of stuff, he absorbs it. I take all those things as good signs. Yeah, and one thing about Wes being a mentor, too, he's much louder about it than guys like Devin and JJ. Um, but there was a moment in Phoenix. So this was this was last week, maybe on Wednesday night, I think. And at the time, they'd lost, I want to say, four in a row, seven out of eight. You're starting to see everybody show signs of frustration, even Harrison Barnes, who's like the most stoic guy of all time. And they're down, you know, double digits. Dennis is having a, a poor shooting night. He's very frustrated visibly. He gets called out of the game you know, kind of heads over to the bench, sits down. He's pretty upset, and the first person that talks to him is Wes mm-hmm. in his ear, pointing, you know, do this, do that, offense, defense, just talking to him. And I think just having somebody to talk to, to kind of, like, distract you from your own frustration is good. Even if they're not giving you a, a point of coaching, even if they're not trying to motivate you, just, like, having a vet able to recognize this guy is pissed, I need to just – I just need to say what's up. Yeah, and, and Wes is great with that, and I think Devin especially through experience. Because remember, De- Avery was hard yeah. on Devin. You know, Avery, uh, after the fact, oh, I can't believe we traded. Well, Avery, you were trying to run Devin off for a, right. for a long, long time, you know. but uh, I'm glad you brought up Devin because I, I maintain to this day, I've never asked him, but Nelly started Devin ahead of Jason Terry out of spite over not resigning Steve Nash. Mm-hmm. You know, oh, I, I would say it to Nelly's face. He's just in Maui right now. But I went down. He was so pissed off at Cuban for not resigning Nash. He said, okay, I'm going to start a rookie. You'll see how that goes. Devin started as a rookie yeah. ahead of now. Jason Terry also came from a weird scene in Atlanta mm-hmm. and they had to reconfigure his game. But that Devin point is outstanding. Devin can relate to being a rookie here and having a lot of expectations on you and his situation he's walking into, you got one of the best players in the league in his prime and all that. Yeah. So Devin's a great voice for Dennis. Yeah, no, no question. And, uh, you know, the other thing I think that, and, and Wes has, has talked about this a little bit, is Rick, especially in the heat of the moment, is not always the gentlest communicator. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Says the man who's flown around in a plane with Rick before. That's awesome. Yeah, well, I had a parachute, though. Actually, the plane had a parachute. <laughs> and Rick didn't tell me until we were up in the air that he wouldn't let his family fly with him. <laughs> um, but anyways, um, 
And, and you know, Rick will, I think, admit to that. Uh, obviously, just recently apologized for some heat of the moment communication with Sala, which was wildly entertaining. Uh, but uh, he's, you know, Rick is some can be very blunt and just harsh. And Wes is a great Rick translator. You know, Wes can say, "Hey, look, here's what he's here's the message he's trying to get across to you," and you know, kind of serve as a buffer is not the right word. Um, I like translator. Yeah, translator. Like I said, just Rick delivers a, a message sometimes, and, and and if it's a really kind of blunt, harsh message, Wes can kind of get over there, put his arm around him, and say, "Look, man, here's what he says. You know, here's." Here's how you should interpret it. You know what? I want to throw one thing out there, too, because Harp says this. You know, Harp had a great career, and I'm obviously a big Harp fan. But he and everybody's personality is different. But Harp was the guy that wanted to know exactly where he stood. So a lot of guys appreciate the mm-hmm. coach that will look you in the eye and tell you, hey, and some guys get their feelings hurt. Some guys don't have that mentality. But I think a lot of guys want to know where they stand and how their coach feels about him. And Rick does that maybe to a fault, depending on what guy it is. Some guys can take it, some guys can't. You know, and, and I remember when they drafted uh, Dennis, you know, they're, they're one thing that, and there were questions about his character coming out. Yeah. I mean, you know, there were a lot of questions about his character, and I think a lot of it had to do with the fact North Carolina State had a losing season. You know, the coach got fired. There's some body language. You know, if you're a 18, 19 year old kid, your season goes that crossways, your body language might not always be great, but. And if you know much about the guys he was playing with, he wasn't getting much help. Yeah. But, uh, what, and, but he, the Mavericks loved him in the interviews. And, mm-hmm. and I remember one thing Rick kept talking about was the humility he showed. Now, there's a cockiness to Dennis Smith Jr. Oh, yeah. You don't have to tell him he's talented. Right. He'll. It, he knows, yeah. and he doesn't mind letting you know. Right. Okay? He expects to be great, but the humility is he understands he needs help to fulfill his potential. He needs to be coached up to his potential, and I think there's that extreme confidence combined with that humility. He welcomes hard coaching. Now, he might not like hearing it in the moment. He mm-hmm. might not like Chris Dunn coming in and scoring 32 and Rick calling him out publicly. And then me going in there and, you know, ask him about it first thing in the scrum. He, you know, he, he might not love that, but it's not a situation where he's going to pout about it. You know, and, I mean, Rick has watched more film, I think, with Dennis, than, you know, according to Rick, than he has with any other player during any other season of his coaching career. And I promise you, those aren't kind gentle film sessions no but you know what you but you brought up a great point and that's that's i think that's where we got started that's uh the best indicator of what this season is about you know and that's why jj and devin weren't on the floor at the end of that game it's about dennis's growth and how quickly he can grow because everyone knows this is far and away the most talented player we have drafted since dirk yeah and when we drafted dirk we didn't know he was going to be as great as he was well, this, Nelly, Nelly said he was going to be Rookie of the Year. <laughs> right. He also then, like right around that, said Chris Anstey was going to be the best running big man in the NBA. So, But my whole point is that what you just said about Rick watching more film with him maybe than any other player in any other year, 
is the ultimate testament to what this year is about for the Dallas Mavericks. Yeah, you know, and it's like they let Bobby write for Mavs.com right now. They, you know, he's got some potential, but they need to let him learn through his rookie mistakes. Now, We're all he, developing. Now, he might be more Roddy B than Dennis Smith. <laughs> wow. Bobby gets hurt a lot. I welcome you into my home. This is how you – I let you use my sink, man. It's unbelievable. Okay, so moving forward, and this is something – Skin, I don't think that you and I have talked about this, so I'm curious to hear what you have to say too. Moving forward, it's pretty clear Dennis is kind of hopefully a foundational piece, assuming health and all that stuff and mm-hmm. expected improvement. What are some of the kind of archetypes uh, – what are the kinds of players that you – both of you believe would best complement his game. So first, you know, Bigman, for example, is he a rim-running point guard guy? Like, do, do you want to play along a lob guy, or do you want to play along uh, like a stretch guy, more like Dirk, more like a, a spot-up guy? Do you want him playing with ball-handling wings that can make plays, or do you want him just surrounded by shooting? What is the best, the ideal Dennis system? Good players. Good players. <laughs> and, I, you know, I'm kind of being sarcastic, but – when you're going to be picking where the maps are picking, just get talent. Yeah. And then Rick's a good enough coach where he can make it work. Yeah, I don't think you have to say, well, you, you, don't, you don't go into the draft thinking, okay, we need this sort of player. And, oh, well, you know, oh, no, he's, he's not uh, – he doesn't fit perfectly into this little box that we're trying to, to draft. No. You go draft the best possible talent and then say, you know what, we've got one of the best coaches in the league. He'll figure out how to make it all work. If Dennis is as good as as you think he can be, he's going to need another player at that level for this thing to get back to, you know, glory day uh, type. type. You, You need two stars minimum in this league, and the best way for the Mavericks to go about that is to hit on these lottery picks. Yeah, I think I think he's right. I think that you need a player that is troublesome for the other team so that it opens up more things for Dennis. And there's a lot of different ways to get there. All right, we can talk more about the draft as the draft draws near and the season goes on. But for now, I think we should take a second and talk about every Mavs fan's favorite team, the Rockets. I want to know why Chris Paul and James Harden worked so fast. And to counter it... Uh, there's been examples of ball-dominant guys that have absolutely destroyed a team. I mean, look at Cleveland right now, and Isaiah oh. Thomas dropped in the middle of that thing. Yeah. Why, as a guy who's covering the Rockets as closely as you are, why did Chris Paul and James Harden work immediately? And I actually wrote about this the other night in uh, when the Rockets absolutely torched Cleveland, which is kind of a continuation of a, of a trend for the Little Cavaliers. Hmm. Chris Paul chose Houston. Isaiah Thomas did not choose Cleveland. Okay, plus, I mean, you've got Isaiah coming off injury, blah, blah, blah. But obviously, CP3 has come off uh, injury midseason as well. You know, he missed a month of the knee. But it's a simple fact of arranged marriages are hard to make work. And that's an arranged marriage in Cleveland. That's an arranged marriage where, you know, one of the parties is – actually, both of them are (laughs) are looking toward this summer. LeBron, where am I going to go? And Isaiah, who's going to pay me? Um, And in Houston – CP3 and James Harden got together and decided they wanted to play together. They did, and it's as simple, you know, Mike D'Antoni just says they wanted to make it work, so they made it work. And it, it, it sounds simple, but that, that's true. They spent a ton of time together this summer. I mean, they played 
together in, in Vegas. They played together uh, in, in L.A. They played together in New York. They played together in, uh, I think it was the Bahamas. They played together uh, in, in Houston. You know, they'd have their teammates with them a lot of the times. But And CP3's always been a great spot-up shooter. He just hadn't done it a whole lot, but he's really not doing it a whole lot now either. Like when you watch him, it's still uh, creating ISO situations and just kind of taking your turn. And, yeah. and then, okay, if it ain't there for James, kick it to CP and, you know, he'll go. But, I mean, their offense ain't complicated. It's spread the floor, set a pick, and the whole purpose of the pick, much like it was for years and years with Dirk, the whole purpose of the pick is to get a switch, uh, attack that. And then the, I think the other thing is – it's not even so much that they're playing so well together, but it's that when they're both healthy, they've always got one or the other. Yeah. Chris Paul against second units has been absolutely lethal. I mean, yeah. Chris Paul surrounded by shooters operating against bench players is, is not fair. And then, you know, obviously James last year, you, you saw what he did. So they stagger their minutes. They're playing about 20 minutes per game together, and they're really damn good with both of them on the floor. But and I haven't checked the numbers lately, but for a while they were actually better with one or the other. There, there, there's, I want to throw this in because you said so many great things that are interesting to me. One, Paul against bench players. To me, this is one of the reasons like why Berea is statistically so dominant yep. is who he's playing against and his veteran level. But for years and years, one of the toughest things for teams to defend was Tony Parker and Ginobili on the floor at the same time. But what it really benefited the Spurs is that when Parker went to the bench, Ginobili took over. And that's really why he started coming off the bench, if people remember. Mm -hmm. But they were also great together. So many defenses are geared towards your help scenarios when the pick and roll is on one side of the floor. But if you can reverse the ball and there's an equally adept pick and roll player on the other side, it causes havoc amongst help defense concepts. It's just too hard to cover when there are two elite pick-and-roll defenders on the floor. I mean, uh, offensive players on the floor at the same time. And, and then, you know, when one of them sits, they bring in Eric Gordon. Right. You know, they they bring great. in the reigning sixth man of the year. Yes. Who, by the way, and it's funny because he hadn't really gotten to an extended groove shooting the ball, but you're still going to guard him out to 30 feet. Oh, yeah. But he had a great summer in terms of conditioning. I mean, he came back sleeker. He came back more explosive. You know, I talked to him. He said he really focused on kind of Olympic weightlifting. Huh. And, I, I mean, he is, uh, as a as a driver and finisher, he's been unbelievable this year. I remember the, the first game of the season, you know, they're playing Golden State, and he yeah. got a switch on Jordan Bell, blew by him. Jordan Bell, he's a rookie, but he's a right. rookie who's calling cards. Blocking shots, yeah. He blew by him and went up in the half court and hammered it with two hands. And I'm just like, holy bleep. Who's this guy? Yeah. And so, yeah, when one of them sits, you're, you're bringing in that guy. Yeah. yeah. So, Tim, before we get you out of here, um, one thing that is always the case in the NBA is teams are going to look at other teams who are successful. Mm-hmm. So, whether that's the Warriors or the Cavs or what now the Rockets, obviously, who are having an unbelievable season. And they're going to say, what are they doing that we can replicate? Given that Harden and Paul are both number one and two in the NBA in ISO usage yeah. and ISO efficiency, which has probably never happened before, hmm. and given that they have a stable of wing shooters who the likes which we have not seen outside of Golden State, how replicable, 
how copyable uh, is the the Rockets roster? Are teams going to try and do what they're doing? I I, I think the ISO thing is an absolute exception. I, I I mean, look, that's James Harden's the best ISO player in the league. Chris Paul, you don't have to get real far down the list. I mean, you have to have special talents uh, to to be able to do that. Now, the three point shooting, you know, obviously. Teams all around. I mean, look at the numbers of three-point shooting now, even to five years ago, ten yeah, years Yeah, the Masters have franchise record in three-point attempts three years in a row. Yeah. No. Yeah, and, and the Rockets, you know, set an NBA record last year, and they're going to blow that away right. uh, this year. So the three-point shooting is is certainly something, and, and that's just, you know, it's math, it's analytics. I think that's really a, a league-wide trend. But I think that uh, you, you're not going to see team. The, the Rockets are going to be – the exception when it comes to ISO just because they've got two I- exceptions as players. I, I think that uh, the Warriors style, and obviously they've got freak talent, but I, you know, the ball movement, right. I think that's going to be much more for teams that are copycatting. They're much more likely to copycat the Warriors than they are the Rockets. And, you know, not that they can copycat the talent on right. either of them. I think to his point, I think the next trend or whatever, and I think part of it is Draymond, and Draymond's unique, but it's a playmaking big. I think all the talk about stretch four, that's good. You want guys that can shoot. The next level is now a big that can, like if you watch Boogie play, you know, you yeah. talk to all these coaches and they're talking about stopping Russ in transition or Steph in transition. I talk about build a wall. Go ask an assistant coach about building a wall to stop a five bringing the ball up the floor. Right. It's a new world. And, uh, the or LeBron. That, or LeBron, exactly. <laughs> you know, who's damn near five size. And, and last night I'm watching NBA TV and Blake Griffin gets the rebound, yeah. dribbles down, and throws the lob to, uh, to Drummond in transition like we've seen Boogie to Anthony Davis. It's a brave new world. And, and, and Drummond's an underrated playmaker. That's probably the, right now the, the best passing 4-5 tandem. You uh-huh. know, they, they've got to grow together, but... Uh, both those guys are for power forward and center are great playmakers. I like that trade for both teams. Yeah, it's good. It's LeBron, Giannis, Jokic, the Detroit guys. That's yeah. kind of the next wave for you, Skin. Oh, absolutely, and and that's why I'm intrigued by Bagley. I think he can be a playmaking big. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, hey, it's we're talking about super elite level guys. I throw Carl Anthony Towns. I think there's nothing yeah. he can't do. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, and he's even defending now. Yeah. Get Tibbs going, man. Well, get 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 uh, Jimmy Butler right. and Taj Gibson in there to be Tibbs' locker room enforcers. Yeah, good stuff. They're Wesley Matthews, so mm-hmm. to speak. Sure. Well, there you go, Tim. Thank you for joining us, man, and uh, for joining the podcast. We're going to give you a Mavs hoodie. We're going to give you a Mavs hat. We're going to give you Mavs glasses, a watch, some slides. Sweet. I'll so have all go. my Christmas shopping done for my brothers. <laughs> wow. Your all Christmas right. gifts for Earl Case Need have yeah. all been met. There he is, Tim McMahon. Uh, thanks, Tim. And thank you for tuning in to uh, Numbers on the Boards. Boom. Skin, this was fun, man. I don't want to take another week off. I don't want to uh, you know, go another week without talking to no, you. No, we're good from here on out. And the, ne- ne- the next time we talk, it'll be post-trade deadline. Yeah. And uh, leading up to the dunk contest. Okay. Exciting times. Yes, sir. Exciting times. All right. Thank you guys for listening. We'll see you next week. Numbers on the boards with Jeff Skinwade and Bobby Corella. It's Corella.